You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 2 of The Guidepost. Today, we are going to talk about the meeting on May 4th uh, with the Striped Bass Management Board. And from a real high view, folks, uh, it's hard to feel like we didn't win a big one. Um, Vast percentage of of the options that were passed uh, were, were things that were what we wanted or very close to what we wanted, but... We have uh, Captain John McMurray and Willie Goldsmith here today to kind of break it apart. Uh, gentlemen, how are we doing? Awesome. Good morning, Tony. Okay. I'm glad, to be, I'm glad to be back here with the Dream Team. It's been a while. Um, and uh, I guess that's what a, a dreary Saturday morning in what should be a beautiful month of May will do to you. Man, I don't, it's, been, it's been awful. Um, I'm waiting for the per- first person to say drought. It's good. Uh, it's good podcasting weather, though. So here it we is, are. It's yeah. incredibly good right. podcasting weather. So I got uh, folks. I gotta we're just gonna... out that the way the weather works for me, and you know, call it Murphy's Law or McMurray's Law or whatever you want. But during that four days of commission meetings, the weather was perfect fishing weather. And you know, I got off. I got out of that meeting. I was lucky to get two days in, but now it looks like garbage for the next four days. It's bull poop. Fish gods angry. <laughs> uh, we'll beep. We'll, we'll obviously beep out poop there. Yeah, yeah. It's not a bad word. Had my had my finger on the buzzer, Willie. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, go ahead. So the meeting, you know, I, first of all, I think uh, I think Marty Gary, the chairman of the Stripe Bass Management Board, uh, executive director of PRFC, I think he did a great job leading this meeting. Um, one of the things that he did was kind of stagger the issues from least contentious, I think, I think to most contentious. So um, before lunch, Marty decided to address the rebuilding plan. And uh, that, that vote happened very quick. So 4.4 rebuilding plan, the board approved option B and in 4.4.2 framework, they also approved option B, both of which, which we, which we selected. Um, The first option B on 4.4.1 was to rebuild the female SSB to target level by no later than 2029 and piggybacking on that. Um, the other option B in 4.4.2, if the stock assessment comes back bad, the board can act swiftly um, without having to wait for an addendum, which would take us probably into 2024 before we could address this. So positions that we had, fellas, you know, what did you think? Did this set the tone of the meeting? Yeah, I, I think it did. Absolutely. Um, you know, uh, it, it's hard not to kind of see the sea change in in the board and, and how, you know, all, all of those states who certainly didn't really seem to be uh, pro-precaution, pro-conservation before certainly seem to have come around. Um, you know, it's almost like there was a deliberate change in tide uh, and, and, and not a uh, not one that happened necessarily at this meeting, but happened over the course of the last two, maybe three years. Um, and, and I think that was pretty clear right at the beginning. Um, this was not going to be a hugely contentious meeting and, and that everybody was more or less on the same page. You know, it's, it's, it's time to do something here and it's time to, to manage this fishery uh, the way it should be managed as, uh, you know, not necessarily as, as something to be valued as food, but as something to be valued as sport. Uh, and that seemed pretty clear to me at the, at the onset. 
Yeah, I, I would agree with that, John. I think, um, you know, Emily, obviously, Emily Franco, who's done an unbelievable job of of wrangling this this document, this uh, amendment over the past uh, year or so, um, you know, before the discussion from the board on each issue, uh, she would basically give a rundown of what the options were and what the public had to say. And it was, you know, it was, as, as Tony wrote in his blog last week, kind of tabulating what the comments said. Um, it was, it would have been pretty difficult to ignore what the public overwhelmingly wanted here in terms of rebuilding, you know, to rebuild the stock using that low recruitment assumption, um, to, you know, give the board the ability to, to take quick action if it's needed after the 2022 assessment. So I think again, you know, John, it's been a, a long time coming and it really culminated in what, and what Emily presented, uh, and that the board then responded to. So a couple of things on that one, um, anybody who still thinks that, the commission doesn't listen to public comment is a moron. <laughs> I mean, clearly it, it made a huge difference in this process. And, and clearly the board feels accountable to the public. Whereas, you know, it seemed like a few years ago, they just didn't, they, they kind of just did what they want. And then, you know, the board is under no obligation to do what the public tells them to do. I mean, they're there to make their own decisions. The, the public comment is really, for context, so they, they kind of know where the public is coming from. Uh, but I, I, I can't help but feel like they felt real pressure this time. Um, to, to switch gears for a minute, you know, I guess we're talking about rebuilding now, and, and John Clark in particular, and, and Mike Luisi as well, brought up, um, you know, the whole the elephant in the room, I think, which is, you know, we have to we have to reach this biomass target that's that's higher than anything we've ever reached, even with, with good recruitment and even at the peak levels of, of striped bass abundance, um, you know, and, and whether or not that's even possible. And, you know, I, my point during all that was, well, if the science says it's possible, it's, it's possible. And I think we're obligated to try. And I think uh, the public is asking us to try and do that. And, and for that reason, let's Let's buckle down. Let's let's try not to make any excuses, and let's let's give it the old college try. And if we can't reach that biomass target uh, by 2029, or or at any point really, then you know only only then do we cross that bridge and we uh, get to it. And we we address those issues in a in a real uh, scientific way, not just uh, I think how how some folks wanted to do it, particularly from Maryland and uh, and Delaware at the beginning, where we just take a take a look at the reference points and. You know, whether we've tried to reach them or not, we just change them because we think maybe we can't. And that, that's not the right way to do it. You're you're absolutely right, John. And I think, you know, as always, our our friends up in New Hampshire, the New Hampshire delegation was was pretty staunch in this point. And as I recall, you know, John Clark had brought this point up about the reference points, you know, about kind of setting the public up for disappointment. And, and Dennis Abbott made the very astute observation that the uh, the commission's been disappointing the public for the last couple of years, if not longer, when it comes to striped bass and not achieving expectations. So, you know, this is the demonstration of a good faith effort to, to get things right. And so I think that's an important point here is that this is not happening in a vacuum um, that, you know, there's there's a lot of momentum here. And, um, and as you've said, there's, there's cause to believe that, that we can get back there. Mm -hmm. and, and I think one thing that, that wasn't made, made clear is that we've never tried, you know, we've never kept fishing mortality, uh, below the level that will get us to that spawning stock biomass target. Yeah, John, um, to, to piggyback on that, you know, we ignored, uh, some management triggers along the way to get us here. And it's, it's kind of disingenuous to, you know, keep bringing up that we've never hit target when we, we knew we were overfishing or getting very close to it and just kept going. Um, so, okay. Rebuilding plan, clean sweep. Next one, 4.1 management triggers. So there were four different tiers to this, I believe. And tier one had to do with fishing mortality, like the F triggers. Tier two was uh, SSB biomass triggers. Clean sweep on both of those, which was essentially status quo. Uh, don't, don't weaken the triggers. When we get into tier three, um, the recruitment triggers, we were victorious on option A. Option B came in a little bit different. Sub option B3 was selected. 
heard some feedback from some folks that we talked to about stripers they were a little disappointed that b3 came in with almost no public support this is super nuanced um tier three recruitment triggers option b um this is a this is a lot of word salad here folks but uh, i'll read it off and we'll try to break it down if the recruitment trigger is tripped an interim f target calculated using the low recruitment assumption is implemented and the f-based management triggers defined in section 4.1 are reevaluated using those interim reference points if an f-based trigger is tripped upon reevaluation stripe ass management program must be adjusted to reduce f within one year okay big picture on this they're still reacting quickly to that F trigger recruitment trigger. Um, yeah, I mean, Tony, I'll, <clears throat> I, I think, you know, our preferred option here wasn't selected when it comes to what the response is, but the fact that the board is now having an increased, you know, an increased sensitivity on the recruitment trigger coupled with the fact that there's now prescriptive action when it comes to when that recruitment trigger is tripped, that's a, a huge improvement over what this document over what the amendment previously had. So I think that's, you know, again, this was not our preferred option here, but this is for the first time really specifying board action that needs to be taken um, when we're having bad recruitment. And we've been having bad recruitment in the Bay the last couple of years. And so it's important to to have some kind of, um, you know, roadmap to, to considering that. Yeah, that's a, a great way to put it, Willie. Um, you know, it's not it wasn't our preferred option, but it it's not like it's a loss. Uh, and And to be honest, this is this is very science based adjusting that uh, adjusting that uh that f rate um it's how it should be done so by no means is this a defeat um tier four so this is this is really nuanced the deferred management plan and that is the board can defer management on an action if it's already initiated in another action uh an action that would be in response to a, a trip trigger that's a that's option e right uh option e, e or f no it was i'm sorry it was option f yeah so uh, i i didn't push back terribly hard on this uh, because I don't think it's catastrophic. Uh, you know, I did, I think I said on record that it's a bad idea to allow the board the opportunity to, to delay on anything, given the board's history of, of deliberate delay and, and the public perception that they kicked the can down the road uh, more than not. Um, but I also, I, I don't think it's catastrophic. Um, it, it could possibly allow a problem to fester and it becomes more difficult to resolve just because the management board is maybe working on a different trigger or, or uh, going down the road uh, of, a, of another management action. But really, I, I think uh, from a practical perspective where the rubber meets the road, if you're addressing, say, overfishing and then the recruitment trigger trips, well, uh, you're, you're perhaps addressing both at the same time with that action. It might not require two actions. Um, and that's kind of what, where the discussion went. I, I don't, I, I think it's, I think it's okay. Um, you know, it'd be nice to see no opportunity for delay, but I understand the board's uh, reluctance to do that because, you know, we could, we could have two or three different management actions that perhaps, uh, overlap and conflict with each other just because there's a requirement to to react to every trigger. So I, I, I understand, and and I don't think it's catastrophic. And and John, on the flip side, in the process of reacting, because you gotta, you have to think that some of these management triggers are going to get tripped in the next few years just because of the status of striped bass. And there's a so, lot of triggers too. I mean, it's not. And there's a there's a yeah and. I, I kind of look at maybe the process would be delayed if the triggers keep tripping, right? Well, we can't, this trigger tripped and now we got to work on that, that kind of thing. So this isn't, I mean, it isn't the worst thing in the world. Um, you know, if you're, if you're in the middle of one action, get it done and, and move on to the next. And 
this is a long haul thing. And then this is going to take us into release mortality. This document's going to be around for a while. So I don't, I don't consider it a, a devastating loss either. Um, and I'll just, well, I'll just add of, one thing. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I just, I mean, real quick, I, you, you alluded to it earlier, John and Megan Ware brought it up during the meeting. This is about the recruitment trigger, right? Because every, you know, the, the other triggers are going to be based on the stock assessment. And so you're not going to have any other, the only issue here that would arise um, would be if, if there's poor recruitment. And there's also the point that was made that this is not requiring deferred management. This is providing the opportunity to defer management. And I know that, you know, we've had concerns with the board's ability to respond in the past, but I do think that if there was a situation, um, you know, that, that really merited um, a quicker response, you know, this doesn't preclude that from happening. So I think there's, yeah, so you know, I, there's I, still opportunity. Yeah. And I caught that, uh, that comment by, uh, by staff that the board can decide to react to the, the second trigger or the third trigger if it's tripped, uh, but they're not required to. And, you know, I think, remember specifically, but I said, you know, given the history of the board, it's not likely to act on anything unless it's required to. And it hasn't in the entire history of Amendment 6 going back to 2003. It's never reacted unless there was a trigger that required them to react. And, and even then, there were triggers that were or at least one trigger that was tripped that they didn't react to. Uh, even though there was a clear requirement. So, uh, you know, my point was, listen, uh, you know, any any sort of flexibility to get out of, uh, you know, doing the, the right thing for the resource here is a bad idea. Um, so I don't support it. But, you know, like I said, it's I, I understand the rationale and, and I don't think it's it's terrible. And, and it may bite us in the ass, but but I don't if I had to guess, I don't think it will. So with that, are we ready to move on to? <laughs> One of the uh, one of the most spirited discussions during the meeting, which was on recreational release mortality. Tony, you want to kick us off? Yeah, there were quite a few options here, um, and it was this was kind of like an a la carte deal. Um, you could just pick whichever ones you wanted. So, you know, option A was circle hooks. Uh, option B was um, option B was seasonal uh, and uh, no harvest, no target or spawning spawning area closures. Um, C had to do with kind of reinforcing circle hooks and basically not using gaffs. And then D was just an outreach and education thing. Would the states be, is it suggested to help or is it required to help? And um should we start, think, Tony, with the, the less contentious stuff and then move into the, the big part of the discussion, which was the, the closure stuff? Seems to me that's the way you want to go, Willie. So let's let's go down <laughs> that path. All right. Um, you know, outreach and education. Um, you know, we recommended that the states continue to promote it, basically. Nothing, nothing mandatory. And, you know, we talked to a lot of state agencies about this one. Um, you know, glad the states are going to hopefully step up and educate anglers on, on the best practices. I don't, I don't really know what else to say about that. And that was, that's how uncontentious it was, um, for gear restrictions, stripers caught on an unapproved method. You know, you catch something on bait on a J hook by accident while you're, while you're fishing for whatever, uh, you have to return it to the water without injury and you can't use gaffs for stripers anymore, which I think is a wonderful thing. Tony. So, so I, yeah. I think uh, one of the interesting parts of that discussion, uh, there was very little pushback. I mean, it makes sense. You, you catch a fish on unapproved gear. Um, it's required to go back in the water, whether it's a, a keeper or not. That's a simple, uh, you know, law enforcement, you know, this, this is the law. You can't target, fish with with that gear and and if you catch them and you're not targeting they got to go back it just makes sense and uh the uh a commissioner from new jersey said well you know what about the kid he's fluke fishing he gets his first ever striper it's not fair to to, to make him throw it back and i i think the the response from uh, law enforcement was epic you know he said uh, you know, that's that should be a teachable moment. It's a perfect teachable moment for a kid to explain to him why, why or her, why that fish needs to go back. And I thought that was a, 
that was pretty profound and a, and a good way to address that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and thank you very much law enforcement for, for making that comment. Cause I'll tell you what, it's a heck of a lot easier to teach a young person about conservation than it is to teach an old person. Ask me how I know. <laughs> so, you know, you could, you can make a kid feel good about that. I'm sure you've had those conversations with Ollie, John. Oh, absolutely. A hundred times. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny, man. Kids like, I think they, I think they go through this process where, you know, when they first start fishing, they want to kill everything. Bring it yeah. home, show mom, let's, let's eat it, you know? And then, and then I think as time goes on, the more that they fish, it's kind of, that kind of changes. I've seen the changes in my kid, um, you know, and I, and I think that's, they learn more about the resource. They care more about the resource. Now, if you, if you were a, uh, a human dimensions fisheries nerd, Tony, you would call that recreation specialization. Whereas you get more engaged and you learn more about the resource and you care more about it and taking fish home to eat is less and less of a part of the experience for you. So do y'all want to talk about the closure stuff that did Absolutely. not pass? I, I think that was one of, if not perhaps the biggest win we got out of this. Um, I, I think, I, I, and I'm being specific to the, the no-take closures um, and, and, you know, getting all the closures taken out, I think at this point was a good idea because, you know, really effort is what is important to this fishery. Effort, you know, is what brings the economic benefit. Why, why would you want to take that away? Uh, and, and it's not, uh, you, you know, it's a, it's a pretty extreme measure. To, to, to close a fishery like that. And we're not there yet. We haven't controlled the things that we can't control to get us to that SSB target yet. We, we don't need to do this yet. And the way it was laid out in the document, uh, it, it wasn't real fleshed out. There were a lot of questions, particularly on the, the spawning area closures. We still didn't have maps. Um, you know, did two weeks, we, we have no idea when those fish are going to be there. So closing for two weeks didn't make any sense. And, and frankly, just it's, it's just not necessary at this point. Um, and I think getting it removed from the document and, and certainly I will, it'll come back during the rebuilding if we need to, to have uh, more measures to get to the stock, get the stock to the, the spawning stock biomass target by 2029. We're going to have to relook at those again and, and reassess and hopefully have staff paint a better picture of what they're actually going to look like. But uh, these no target closures could have really hurt the light tackle guide industry badly because I, I think we've had these discussions before, Tony, that the, the only thing because of the enforcement issues, I mean, I think Gilmore said there's usually an 80% compliance rate, whether you could enforce it or not. And I, my response was, there's no way it's going to be close to 80%. Uh, people are going to fish. People are going to go fishing. John, if it was, look, maybe, uh, I'm just picking a species. Maybe if there was some no target closure on summer flounder. And that may actually be effective because when you're fishing for flounder, you're fishing for flounder, right? That's just how it is. I think where it's you totally are, Tony, but not necessarily up there, right? But I think your point is well taken that a different species could make so, this more palatable. So, you know, like, you can just be, you can be using all the same stuff and say, I'm fishing for Albies, I'm fishing for blues. And <laughs> look, uh, it's, it's, uh, what I'm saying is the compliance rate is not going to be 80%. Uh, it's not even going to, no way. The, the only people who are going to have to be compliant are the guides that market catch and release trips. The guys that have historically built their businesses around catch and release fishing. And what's ironic about that is it's that part of the community that has been, uh, the biggest conservation advocates, um, and and they, I mean, no way I could get away with with fishing in Jamaica Bay right now for bluefish when there's no bluefish around, and I, I certainly couldn't make social media posts or or try to book trips because I you just couldn't get away with it. Nor would I want to be non-compliant. I mean, I would get skewered if somebody saw me out there fishing during a, a no-target uh, closure. 
And it's it's just it's not fair to our community and it's not going to do anything. They can't even tell us, you know, what sort of impact we'll have because of the compliance issues and because of the uh, redistribution of effort, et cetera. It's just it's just a terrible. Well, John, and it's not necessary. John, how about if you think if you think law enforcement did an awesome job addressing. You know, the teachable moment for the kid. I think they did equally as good of a job explaining this to the board because they went on record and said, you know, this is not enforceable and, and gave a very good reason. It's not enforceable because they cannot prosecute on intent. Right. That is, that is iron clad. So so everything that you said is true. Everything you said is true. Even if they do what uh, they do in Maryland, where they'll write a ticket if they sit there and watch a guy catch fish after fish and release them. Once that gets to court, you could still say, well, yeah, I was catching a mess of stripers, but I was still trying to catch bluefish. It just it's kind of silly and it doesn't make any sense. And it's not necessary right now. And I think just, you know, to step back here a second, I know we've been we've been so in the weeds of dealing with this issue. And, you know, I I think it's just important to reiterate, you know, this is not, you know, as the guide community, as folks who really care about the resource, this is not, you know, opposing efforts that are going to be effective at at bringing striped bass back, right? This is thinking about the real on the water implications of these actions, both in terms of economic impacts, but also in terms of conservation impacts. And so, you know, as we pointed out in our letter, you know, the idea of no harvest closures in spawning areas or spawning staging areas, like, we're not opposed to that. That might be a reasonable thing to approach, but this amendment was not the place to address that, right? This is a, a much more detailed conversation that needs to happen um, with more public input and more specificity around it. So it's just important to just remember that, you know, again, we've got a we've got a problem with striped bass. There's going to be some difficult decisions to make, and that's going to happen um, moving forward here, potentially after the assessment in October. Um, but this amendment was not the place to address the, uh, these specific questions. Yeah. And the other thing, Willie, is is this amendment is likely going to be around for at least a decade, maybe more. Um, it's it's not the place to put in closures. Uh, that closures should be seen as a transient measure, better suited to address a particular management issue. And I think you can make the case that if we need to rebuild uh, and, and what we're doing now is not going to get us there, then it, it should be addressed in an addendum to rebuild, not, not in a, an, an amendment that, you know, I, I can't imagine, I mean, hopefully God, God help us if, if it's the case, but I can't imagine we're going to be need, needing to close fisheries down for, for 20 years. Like hopefully we're not going to be in. Like you said, man, we're not there. Look, uh, there's, there's isolated places where striped bass fishing is still good. Trust me when I tell you as someone who was alive, during the moratorium, there were no stripers. I mean, for years, nobody caught a striper, not even a little one. And then they came back like gangbusters. So we're not there. And, and you know, I would just say that I think the community did a great job. All of the brands that signed on and got involved, everyone showed how vast and and how much economy our community produces and to turn that spigot off when we're not there yet i don't i don't know how they can do that i don't know how they can do especially after this meeting i don't think that's going to be pushed as hard as maybe we thought it was going to be before this meeting because based on the law enforcement comments, based on people's feedback, based on just basically telling people they can't work anymore. I don't think that's going to happen. With with that in mind, Tony, I, I'm going to go off for a minute on the moratorium, folks, because it it drives me effing nuts when people... I was waiting for this. I just wanted to tell the listeners I was waiting for this. I didn't know what... What it was that was going to, I can't wait for this. I'm putting myself on mute. Just go, go. Please, I, I'm telling everybody listening to this, shut the F up about moratorium, please, because we're not there yet. We're not, 
at, at, a, at a situation near where we were in, in the late 70s and early 80s, where we truly, we did need a moratorium. Um, and, and keep in mind, people, that discard mortality is now currently assessed at over 50% of the total mortality. That means those fish you release, it's, it's 9%. That means one out of every 10 fish you release likely dies. When you extrapolate that across total fishing effort, because there's a lot of us, the fishery has grown tremendously because simply there was availability of striped bass. You extrapolate across uh, all the anglers, that adds up to 50% of total mortality. So when you scream moratorium, moratorium, and you think that's just going to shut down harvest, you're wrong. It's going to be massive no-target closures. And guess what? You're not going to be able to fish. I'm not going to be able to fish. I'm not going to be able to make a living. So you're not doing anything by saying moratorium except making yourself look like you're an extremely far to the left, you know, my way or the highway. Uh, and and you're creating a possible and, and very potentially real situation where we're not going to be able to fish. Now, listen, we've got uh, a, a pretty poor recruitment situation in the Chesapeake Bay, and, and hopefully that'll change. And, and I suspect that it will, because that's things things tend to be cyclical in the Bay and everywhere, really. Uh, but right now we're being asked to reach a spawning stock biomass that we've never seen in the entire time series uh, under a group, good recruitment scenario, and we've got to get there by 2029. Um, so if we need to make real uh, conservation, real constraining decisions here. Uh, those no harvest closures are almost certainly on the table. Um, so if, if you want a moratorium, understand uh, that it's going to mean no fishing. It's not going to mean no harvest. Yeah. You know, people, I think a lot of people saying moratorium, John, didn't live through the last one. They just know, they know enough about striped bass to say, okay, it worked last time, the moratorium, let's do that again, and then the fishing will be spectacular. Well, and it's, it's very similar to like the game fish arguments. It's like as much as you tell people that uh, the commercial side of things pales in comparison to the recreational side of things, as far as mortality goes, you still have the same people saying, well, if you just shut the commercials down, it'll be fine. Well, if you just have a moratorium, you know, no matter how much you explain it to people, they're still like you look at these uh, these Facebook threads uh, and, and these forums and you're trying to talk about real solutions and real management issues. And then you have some dumbass. It's like moratorium. It's like you have no idea, dude. Stop. You know, let, let the big boys figure this one out. This is not, you know, as easy as just saying moratorium, not unless you don't want to fish anymore. And then, the, and then you try to explain it to them and, you know, it's like, okay, moratorium. They just, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm not being fair here, but uh, that's that's kind of the way I, I see it right now. No, John, I mean, look, uh, I think people listen to this podcast to listen to people like you and Willie and our guests, you know, say say what you know because you're on the inside. And uh, and I think it's a I think it's actually a very positive message. You know, look, uh, the way I look at it is if, if you care enough about striped bass to jump up and down since, say, moratorium, I don't know, read some of our blogs so you can understand it a little bit better. And then you kind of see the full scope of it. And, and you understand that, you know, we got here because of poor management and we can come back with good management. And we just took an enormous step towards that with this document. So, like, if that doesn't, if that doesn't quell all those calls uh, for a moratorium, I don't know what will. Like, we can win. We can work through this. And we can do the right thing by striped bass, and we can still keep fishing. Yeah, and I think the takeaway here is that we could, we control the things that we can effectively control. We can't effectively control discard mortality. Uh, we can't control effort because people are going to go fish no matter what. So we need to just focus on the things that we know we could control, which is uh, hard. Well, John, how about, how about the thing? Look, you know, you're going to say we can control fish and mortality. You know what I'm going to say we're going to control and watch this segue, man. This is, this is going to be cooler than the other side of the pillow. I think we need to control the two States that account for almost 70% of the harvest in pounds and they catch small fish, New Jersey and Maryland. 
And the best way to control New Jersey and Maryland was conservation equivalency. Because we all know they were playing games. We all know that, you know, Maryland in particular was using MRIP numbers that had a PSE of, you know, over 50%. Uh, we saw what was going on. They just kept chugging along. The 2011s never recruited. They were supposed to save the day. And that, my friends, is why we are here today. Because shit like that happening. So, John, when we looked at conservation equivalency, and you and I have been doing this for a fucking long time. I never thought this could happen. I didn't, th I, there were, there were four or five options on this five. I was praying that we would get one. We got four, man. If there, if there's one thing besides removing those closures from rec release mortality, this is it. This is it. So, I mean, did you think it was going to go this good? I didn't think it was going to go this good. You're sitting right there at the table, John. So, given the last two years of discussions at the board level, I, it was pretty clear that people were getting fed up, particularly with those two states and um, their management measures that clearly benefited those states at the expense of the rest of the states. And, and I think New Jersey kind of shot themselves in the foot with that last uh, addendum six uh, really sketchy thing that they did where they only took an 18% reduction instead of the 42% they would have taken under the coastal measures. Um, and, and I get, I, I, I mean, the board had had enough that that was it. Things, things had to change after that. Um, did I think it was going to change so easily? I thought there was going to be a lot of uh, contentious discussion on the issue, but I, I think both those states saw the writing on the wall and they didn't really fight back terribly hard, did they? No, they, no, um, they didn't. I think there was, there was a lot of momentum here, right? And there was a lot of momentum. Something else, Some, something else that letter. The, I, uh, go ahead, Tony. No, no, no. What, what letter? I'm sorry. Uh, so the letter from the attorneys general. Is it attorney generals or attorney general? I don't know. Thank you, John. Uh, I'm glad somebody you. around here listens to me. Also, you might have noticed I've stopped saying recreational anglers because I know that term makes you uh, makes it your is. skin crawl. It drives me nuts. Um, so, anglers. So, recreational angler aside, I, the fact that the attorney generals wrote a letter and said specifically attorneys general that option E one, which would allow the states to just take the percent reduction of the coast instead of the percent reduction that their state would take under the coastal measures. Uh, say, saying that wasn't uh, even compliant with the interstate fishery uh, management program charters requirements for conservation equivalency programs. Uh, and, and that's if they achieve the same level of conservation for the resource under management. Uh, they said that it would clearly undercut the success of management measures. And, and, you know, we, we have a real world example of where that happened. Uh, we ended up with a 42% chance of, of probability of those measures achieving that 18% reduction instead of the 15 50%. That's the ex generally accepted requirement under fisheries management. Um, and, and I think the fact that those, you know, attorney general, attorneys general pointed that out. And the fact that we were able to bring that up in the meeting and say, this is, this is what they said in their letter. Uh, I think that kind of kind of put New Jersey in their place. And, and, you know, I don't think they said much after that, did they? Well, John, a, a big thank you to the attorneys general in Mass, Rhode Island, and especially Connecticut. Um, really, I, I can't recall any time, you know, that level of engagement from those offices appreciate it beyond words. Uh, I think it was, I think it was one of those tipping points as well. Uh, it made a difference just like the public comment made a difference. That letter made a difference. And if anyone wants to look, if anyone wants to look at it, it's in the supplemental materials. I think it's page 209 out of 2179. If my, uh, if my memory is still going right. Um, and if you live in those states, folks, just go to those websites and click contact the office and, uh, and send them a thank you. 
if you're a striped bass fisherman from Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Mass. Um, let me tell you, they'll, they'll love hearing from you because uh, they stuck their necks out. And, and it sure would be nice to hear from constituents. I think that's really, really important on the back end of this stuff. So, John, I'm, you know, that I'm sure maybe maybe this podcast will get back to one of those offices in some fashion. So no more cursing. Uh, <laughs> and they'll and they'll hear our appreciation of uh, for what they did. Um, so, you know, back to back to the nitty gritty with the with conservation equivalency. To me, the most important thing, if I could have picked any one was the first one. You can't use it if the stock is below the threshold. That just yeah. makes sense to mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. When people said, if I could just comment on one thing, that's what I told them to comment on. Yeah. That made sense to me. You, I, I was, I was thrilled when that passed because I think it's one of those things it's hard to argue against. Mm -hmm. Do you want to, if the stock is below the threshold, do you really want to add that uncertainty to management? Mm -hmm. Why would you want to, uh, why would you want to do that if you care about the stock? Yeah. So I don't know. Hey, Were you surprised how easy? I, I was. I was not surprised, but it, it's important to point out uh, for the public anyway that, that once you have these conservationally equivalent measures, um, there's a lot of uncertainty injected into the uh, into the whether or not you're going to achieve your goal because uh, the MREP, the the recreational survey numbers are really uh, much less precise when you use just a year of them instead of several years. And they're much less precise when you just use a, a state's MREP numbers instead of the uh, coastal MREP numbers. So they're developing uh, regulations based on data that's very uncertain, that has very high uh, PSC levels. And well, we'll get to that later, I think. But uh, it just... John, let me, inter let me interject one thing. Please do not stop where, where you're thinking. There's a parallel, though, mm -hmm. between what you just said about MREP and those closures. Yeah. When you start talking about a two week closure or whatever closure in one state, that data is crazy imprecise right. in most cases. Yep. Yeah. So I just wanted to, I just wanted to throw that in for the listeners. So they kind of start seeing these parallels in management, but please continue. Yeah. I mean, the overall point I was making is that you don't want to have that kind of risk when you have a stock that's clearly in trouble. It's clearly overfished. Um, and and the, the the more uh, conservation equivalency measures in states that you have, the more risk you're taking on as far as, uh, you know, rebuilding that stock. Yeah, so I'm, so I'm with you guys. I think, you know, the those are kind of the, the clean wins, right, in CE. So can't do it when the stock's overfished and each state has to take its own, own proportional share of the reduction. Um, when it comes to the MRIP precision and that uncertainty buffer, it was a bit more nuanced. I think we still came out in a good place, but um, you know, it wasn't exactly how we had envisioned it going down. Uh, Tony, do you want to take us kind of down that path of what happened during that part of the meeting? Yeah, it wasn't exactly what we picked, but um, Armstrong put this motion out. And when it was read, I was kind of like, you know, that makes sense. Like, I, you know, I get it. So, uh, option C and D are kind of tied together. So it's going to cover both of them. So there was a concern, like, especially in Maryland, when they closed April down, those numbers were huge, over 50%, incredibly wildly inaccurate. And, um, now moving forward, they're not allowed to use anything exceeding 40%. That's a pretty cool deal because it's a carrot and the stick. The states are going to have to do more surveys, more work on it to lower those PSEs if they're above 40. So in, in, the win is that we'll have more and better data. Um, the other win is a state can't use wildly inaccurate numbers to kind of play a shell game. Uh, and then, you know, piggybacking on that, um, was the uncertainty buffer and this they're tied together as i said so if ce is used so this is if the stock gets above the threshold um there has to be an uncertainty buffer of 10 percent 
Okay. Now, but here's the kicker. If the error, the percent standard error is over 30%, that buffer needs to be 25%. So again, carrot and stick for better data. Um, and those buffers, I mean, especially the 25%, that's a rough one. That's what we advocated for. But when you look at it this way, when it combined get better data and we'll lower your buffer, get better data and you can use CE, you know, as an association, we we constantly harp on that. Um, so uh, this is one of those things where <laughs> I, I'm glad I'm, I was stunned this past. And once we get beyond the threshold, this puts guardrails on CE moving forward. Yeah, I, I think combining those two options was brilliant. I, I think, you know, because it, it didn't look like we were taking the most extreme, you know, 30 percent option C3. Uh, but but in the end, you know, when you combine those two and and you're looking at a 25 percent buffer with, you know, 40 percent, 40 percent PS or a uh, 40 PSE, then it's it's pretty darn conservative. And And frankly, I don't see many states, if any, using conservation equivalency, it, assuming we do get the stock above threshold. It, it just looks like there are so many hurdles here for them to do it, that it's it's easier and perhaps more efficient to just go with the coastwide standard. I mean, is that is that what you guys are thinking too? Or do you think that there's going to be more shenanigans about, uh, you know, trying to, to, to wiggle out of things and get their own regulations? John, I think honestly, I, I'm not a, I'm not a stock assessment scientist. I know that may come as a shock to you. Um, but I actually think it's going to be so long until they're actually able to use it. I mean, we'll find out how far below we're in the threshold with the stock assessment, but I mean, it may be four or five years, man. It may be a little bit. So I think with that length of time, not using it, if, if we are trending up, fingers crossed, um, I think people will kind of forget about it. They'll kind of forget about it as a management tool. And it'll probably be hard to bring it back, especially with those guardrails on it. It may not make a lot of sense. Because, right, stability and regulations, I thought that was a big thing. So, like, why would you want to change the regulations in one state if all of this is working and, and we're all benefiting from it? I don't know. I think... I still think it's going to be four or five years before we're above that threshold. Um, it just can't be used. So, you know. well, let's uh, if we could talk about the stock assessment and and what we think it's going to show for a minute. I think that would be good. And I, I don't want to go off the rails, but uh, well, John, let's know, let's talk about the state. Let's talk about the last part of the um, of this this uh, conservation equivalency thing with what we called it like the New Jersey rule. And then let's talk about the stock, stock assessment. I think a great place to end there. So the New Jersey rule, you mentioned it before in this podcast, New Jersey game, the system, they needed to take like a 40% reduction. They were upset that Maine would have only taken like an 8% reduction. Uh, this is back during addendum six, but like, Hey, you kill that many fish. You cannot expect you know, a state like Maine who kills hardly any fish to have to take the same level of reduction, right? It's just, it's just how it is. So New Jersey game, the system through addendum six, they essentially uh, lowered their fishing mortality, raised their release mortality, and ended up at a net zero for reduction by using, by, by getting away with that. And the only reason we met the conservation goals of addendum six was because of collapse in effort because there aren't very many fish out there. So, you know, now moving forward, whatever those reductions are coastwide, if a state has to take a 50% reduction and another state has to take a four, that's just how it is. Um, and I think, man, I, I love having this on there because, um, I, I don't know. I think they they righted a wrong on that one. Yeah. And and if that's not a deterrent to do CE for New Jersey, I don't know what is. There's no way they're going to take a 42% reduction 
And I, I you know, that the and whole then, and then tack on another twenty five percent. Yeah, offer. yeah. There's no way. And and you know, there was all sorts of, of whining and gnashing of teeth about the the fairness of that. And you know, I, I, you could almost understand where they're coming from because for sure that state would assume more of the burden. But if you have an exponentially larger impact, then of course you're going to have a larger reduction. I mean, how does that not make sense to them? I don't don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I think we do know why, and I'm, I'm, I don't think it I don't think it makes sense to them. I think it's a good talking point. Um, so uh, let's talk about the stock assessment, John. Yeah, so I think. We all kind of thought by uh, Mike Armstrong's Mike Armstrong's comments back in October that there was some inclination that we might be looking at some pretty bad news, um, and that still might be the case. But I, just speaking anecdotally and and kind of what I'm seeing on the water and hearing from my peers, uh, it's that well, two things. One, there's been a reduction in effort. I think we all agree on that. Uh, whether it's because of accessibility or COVID or whatever you want to call it. I mean, there's been a clear reduction in, in effort on striped bass until you get down to Raritan Bay, but we're not, we're not talking about micro regions. No, John, here. I drove, I drove over the bridge yesterday and it was uh, the Chesapeake Bay bridge and it was slick, calm, overcast skies, and just a little bit of drizzle of rain. And I mean, any other year in the 25 years I've lived here, there would have been 300 boats out there. That's interesting because I, I drove down with Jim Gilmore. Like I told you, my train got canceled and we drove over, we took 301 and drove over the, the Bay Bridge. Uh, and I remarked to Jim like this, you know, we saw maybe a half a dozen boats in the entirety of the thing. And I was like, if this had been, you know, the Verrazano Bridge and you look south, you would have seen a hundred boats. Uh, and, and, you know, is this the result of a, a lack of fish down here compared to like what we have in rare, compared to the, the Hudson fish, which, you know, we're not going to get off into that tangent, but the Hudson, the Hudson's productivity is, has got, it's way better than the Chesapeake's is right now. Um, which is not necessarily good news because the Chesapeake accounts for eighty for, or sixty eighty percent of the coastal stock. So, uh, that, but I think you're absolutely right. Um, availability and and you know how good the fishing is absolutely uh, is tied to effort. Um, but it, you know, it, with that know, in mind, look, I would man, also they're not they're they're not having a blockbuster season. Yeah. So far, from just from what I, I mean, it's not terrible, but it's not good. Mm-hmm um there's some fish being caught there's some real big fish being caught but uh you know who the hell wants to ride around in a circle for four or five hours yeah to get like two hits so another back in the day it was a 30 minute trip to get your limit no i hear you um but i think what's also worthy of pointing out here is the slot limit and when you look at places like Raritan Bay, it's real tough to find a slot fish. Everything is either bigger, and then you go over to the Jamaica Bay side, and and everything falls under that slot. It's it's damn hard to catch a fish within that slot limit. And you list, you turn your VHF on, everybody's complaining. You know, I can't find a keeper. Everything's too big. My my point is that a lot of big fish are going back in the water. And yeah, there's going to be some increase in in discard mortality there. Um, but I think the savings we're getting from that slot limit are, are orders of magnitude better than I thought they would be. Um, and, you know, whether or not MRIP picks that up or not, I certainly hope it does. But I, I think my point is we may not be in as bad of a place as we think we are with, with the stock assessment because, because effort reduction and the, uh, the impact of addendum six and this slot limit in particular – uh, we we may not be in a terrible place, but I think it's and, also and the slot important. 100% is working. Go ahead. I was just going to say it's also, and I think this is a good segue because you know we are going to have probably some difficult decisions to confront um, after October. And I think you know Mike Armstrong's brought up the point like 
it might get better and then get worse, right? I mean, those fish yeah. from the last three dismal recruitment years in the upper bay um, are not going to recruit in the fishery for several years. And so that's important to remember mm -hmm. as well. And if that is, you know, as you said, the lion's share of the contribution of the coastal migratory stock, that's going to be a real issue. Yeah. Um, you know, mm -hmm. so short term, you know, we might, we, you know, knock on wood, we'll, we'll see something happen. But, you know, we're also going to have to deal with those, those very low year classes um, that have, you know, recently occurred. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, it's going to be a roller coaster ride, without a doubt. And, you know, folks want stability and management, but if you want long term sustainability, you're going to have to take that roller coaster ride and not bitch and moan about it. Well, John, I think, I think people are already thinking about what this year's juvenile abundance index is going to be in the Chesapeake Bay. And, you know, <laughs> just all I can outside. say is I live here. <laughs> I said you just got to look outside, right, to think about it. Cold and wet. Well, I've lived here a long time, and this is one of the coldest winters we've had in probably 10 years. I think I saw something the other day. It was the coldest January through May or January through April since, like, 2014. And it has snowed and it has rained. And it has snowed in PA, you know, all that. All, I mean, the, the rivers are going to blow up the Potomac. You know, look at the forecast. You know, it's going to be crazy. We don't even whitewater raft in it uh, kind of flooding. So um, I, I have I have hopes that this is an average year. If this was an if this is an average spawn this year, I think that would give I think it would do a couple things. I I, th I think it I think it would give people hope allow us to understand that there is a decent year class moving forward probably think like right now if it is a good year class how do we protect these fish because that's that could be you know that could be it that could get us there by if this was a great year that could get us real close by 2029 they'll be six years old then right so you know there's hope I guess I guess that's a great way to leave it off. You know, um, efforts dropped, the slots saving those big fish that produce the best eggs. Um, you know, there Hudson has been holding real strong. Um, there's hope. This is not this is not 1978, folks. And and right? just to bring it back, Tony, I think you know we're talking about the the specifics of the stock assessment, but I mean the big victory here is you know, we've now got the framework in place, right? We've got this amendment to to think about this stuff and also to respond to these kinds of changes in the fishery. And that really hasn't hasn't been the case in the past. So I think there's there's room for optimism there as well, right? I mean, obviously we're we're not where we want to be right now, but looking forward, looking, you know, a decade into the future, we've got the restrictions around CE. We've got the requirement to to respond to poor recruitment. You know, we have these measures that are in this document. They're gonna get get us in a really good position to respond to those kinds of changes. And like John said, this is going to stick. You know, this this thing's going to be around at least a decade. So that that gives us hope too. So that's our recap on the meeting. Thanks to everyone who helped. Whether you wrote your first letter, or your tenth letter. Thanks to all the brands that piled on. Thanks to the AGs in Rhode Island, Mass, and uh, Connecticut. Thanks to John for sitting at that table not really line up with your personality uh to have to sit and listen to all that so but, but i think we now yeah. know that if folks are trying to plan out their fishing trips just make sure they're aligned with the asmfc meetings you know john will be at that table and the weather will be beautiful so uh, another group to to thank for all this is is you guys is the guides association um you know i've been sitting at that table for an awful long time and it's hard not to correlate the change in tide and, and the deliberate change over from pro harvest to pro abundance at that table. It's hard not to draw that correlation to the, the birth and the momentum that the guides association uh, has developed over the last several years. Um, absolutely. I think uh, we're having some some real effect on the process. So thanks for all the, the hard work you guys have put in. It's greatly appreciated. Well, that's, from this that's end why we and from started it, John. Yeah, man.
Well, I'll tell you what, buddy. It ain't over yet. So all the non-believers, you better believe now. All the people that helped out, we're still gonna we're still gonna put our shoulders into this and rely on you. We got a ways to go. It ain't over. It ain't even close to being over. So listen, thanks for listening, everyone. If you have uh, if you have any comments, send that email uh, to comments at saltwaterguidesassociation.org. If we read it, you win a pair of Costas. Thanks, everyone, listening, and we will talk to you soon.